Dia Yeov and welcome to the Irish History Guide. In this episode we're looking at the Nine Years War, which was a pretty massive conflict in Irish history between 1593 and 1603, which I know was 10 years, but there's a pretty constant debate about when the conflict actually started. Uh, in this episode our landmarks we're looking at are Enniskillen Castle in Fermanagh, as well as Belik, uh, the crossing at the Arnie River, Clontibrit, Monaghan, uh, focusing on the northern half of the island, there's lots of locations that you could uh, listen to this and visit afterwards and soak up the history and get a real feel for what happened there. And uh, there's a lot of storytelling in this. It's a good dose longer than ones I've done before. It's about an hour 25, I think. So get comfortable, get coffee into you. And uh, here we go. This is the Nine Years War, part one. The Red Hand of Ulster, or Law of Jaragula, a symbol that is held proudly by those who claim both Republican nationalist and unionist stances in six of the nine counties of Ulster today, often only being separated by a crown above the hand, indicating loyalty to the English monarch. Some think the symbol is as old as the mythology of Erda itself, a bloody hand being pressed onto a banner after battle in ancient times. A boat race where a man cuts off his own hand and throws it from the boat to the coast to claim the land first and become king. Two giants battling where one had his hand cut off and upon a falling on the rocks below left a bloody imprint. The stories vary and in truth no one knows the true origin of the symbol. But what is certain is its connection to the O'Neill clan of Ulster, as it is commonly known as the Red Hand of the O'Neill. O'Neill being not just a prominent Irish family, but one who held a monopoly on the Irish high kingship for centuries, sharing it between the northern and southern O'Neill clans of Ulster and Maid, until its contention by Brian Barua in the 11th century. But even after the high kingship was more or less made obsolete after the Norman conquest in the 12th century, the O'Neill clan's veins still flowed with the blood of Irish nobility, and they would, for the most part, stay loyal to those bloodlines as one of the strongest Irish factions on the island, both militarily and in their will to maintain their freedom. So why in the 21st century do those loyal to an English monarch hold on law of Jaragula, a symbol of ancient Irish identity as their own, sharing it with their historical enemy? The answer I feel begins at the end of a conflict, the residue of which has clung to the people and carried through to modern times. Part of that residue being an anti-British sentiment that is drilled into the youth of Ireland from our parents and grandparents. So as we grow and develop what we think are our own feelings at the mention of the Brits. For a lot of the population who may not know the full scale of occurrences before the 1916 Rising are simply regurgitating an inherited emotion. An inheritance that has deepened due to the likes of the Great Famine and the more recent War of Independence for example. But it had to stem from somewhere. Something that seemed definite. Of course I can only speak from my own experiences living in Ireland and don't claim to be an expert in any of this. I'm a hobbyist historian. I believe most people in Ireland hold no ill feelings towards the general public of England, but perhaps see some of their skewed views on the Irish and their own country as a letdown by their education system, who seem to cherry-pick their history to favour themselves as the good guys, while the French and Spanish are the bad colonialists. But rarely is there ever a good guy, bad guy scenario in real life. Travelling through the few Irish history books I have in the last couple of years, it becomes hard not to be biased and gloss over some of the harsher things the Irish had done in order to find and celebrate a victory in any given situation. But that in itself is a dangerous path of thinking. This simple binary narrative of good versus evil can be pulled from any history and made easily digestible, 
but they're not completely true to the reality of what happened. If, however, we talk of those broad strokes of goodies against baddies, rather than the fine detail of complicated personalities, motives and political strategies, I can be sure as I ever have been where right and wrong lay, now as I speak of Ireland's history with some deeper knowledge of it, as opposed to regurgitating something I heard my ma say when I was ten. But back to this conflict. The conflict that began to split the meaning of an ancient Irish symbol, and where I think a great boiling of public unrest, anger and hopelessness stemmed. The Nine Years' War also known as the Tyrone Rebellion of 1593-1603. The people and their land, cultural context. Let me try and set the background for our story here, so we can get a better understanding of Ireland 400 or so years ago. If we try and forget what we know about the island's history for a moment, and place ourselves in the late 16th century, the beginnings of early modern Ireland, or a forgotten Irish renaissance, Minute's professor Patricia Palmer says that this period, quote, was anything but a society in freefall heading inexorably towards defeat. Rather, it was a remarkably vibrant place where several traditions and languages flourished, sometimes in dialogue, sometimes clashing. Unquote. The semi nomadic people and cattle herders travelled the dirt paths around the country, speaking Irish, Latin, Spanish, French, and English, seeking new pastures, trading, and conversing, with no inclination or expectation of great change. Off these dirt paths in the remaining wooded areas that hadn't been cleared for farmland, the wolf, or Maktire, literally translated as son of the land, still thrived and knew the ground as well as the native people, both peasant and noble alike. The common people, and those of more importance in terms of governance, lived in a society that is often considered more equal in terms of class and freedoms than what had been lived in recently in Ireland. There was a sense of equality about how the ruling clans came to be governed, as they used a voting system to elect their chief or king, which was rare at the time. But this egalitarian society spoken of by Irish nationalists has been exaggerated in the propaganda from later republican uprisings. Perhaps a more equal society compared to some others at the time, but without doubt primitive to modern standards. Yes, the leader of each clan was voted into position by their kinsmen, and eligibility could be as simple as having a distant relative of the right name. But often, it wasn't the fairest or best political candidate who won. Rather, whoever had the military strength over the others, which partially explains why there was so much internal clan war. The classes below the fighting and feasting elite on the island, mainly the food-producing class and landholders, would have been heavily affected by these kinds of internal wars, which had been constant since Ireland's birth, and later worsened with the country's invasions. Scorched earth tactics and cattle raiding often brought famine and innocent death to those landholders and workers who supplied their chief and his army with food and even shelter at times. In researching, I read a postgrad paper from Trinity College on the structure of Gaelic class, where the relationship between these two people, noble and working class, is described as a protection racket. You keep me and all my men fed, and we'll protect you from our treacherous neighbours. Fail to comply, and you'll have to deal with us. As if working a farm in 16th century Ireland wasn't hard enough, you also had to worry about the leader who was supposed to have your back if you didn't deliver. You can imagine that the stricter kinds of policies drove many of the working members of society away. The landless workers flocked around the country looking for more favourable working conditions, as was their right to do so. But the demand for labour and freedom of movement could lead some chiefs to bankruptcy, so there was a delicate balance in keeping everything running smoothly. Before the Tudor conquest in the 16th century, a lot of the country was back in Irish hands. 
really since the 14th century, which saw waves of terrible war and famine in Ireland, as well as the famous Black Death during the 1340s. The Great Plague that killed a third of Europe's population, roughly 25 million people in just three years. The big port towns in Ireland were densely populated and mostly controlled by the English, and they were the ones who got hit the hardest by the Black Death. The close proximity of people and the trade ships bringing the sickness to land meant the plague spread quickly, completely destroying towns. Meanwhile, the native Irish, who lived in smaller settlements spread out across the country, though they were affected too, they were not witnessing the same scale of horrors as the larger English-controlled towns. This is one reason the English began losing their foothold across the island, but it was also due to the lacking support from London, constant war, and of course the Gaelicisation of the Old English. Over the next 200 years, the island seemed a lot more green than red. The country and its people who remained Gaelic lived under Breton law, a fine-based law system which is the main source of where the idea of this ancient equality I mentioned earlier comes from. This system that had been used since prehistoric Ireland up until the 17th and possibly 18th century is full of interesting and odd laws that can tell us a lot about how people lived. Divorce has often brought up the topic of women's rights in Ireland before English common law was enforced, and it's commonly flung around as an example of the freedom Irish women possessed. But not so commonly spoken of is that even if a woman chose to leave her husband for any of the numerous reasons she could, such as impotency or not providing for her, she would have to return to the care of another man, her father or maybe her brother, depending on the situation. She may have had the freedom to leave a man, but that did not grant her independence from the patriarchal society it very much was. And in reality, a lot of women sought out work in the regions controlled by the English. Another example that has been used to argue against the native Irish system by the English ruling class was the law of compensation. This law sought a fining for murder or bodily harm, which was called an eric, as opposed to the death sentence the English preferred during the Middle Ages. The compensation law can possibly be seen as verging on a more humane and modern solution to the crime, with death sentencing being more or less non-existent in Western civilization in our own era, but rather than a fine we obviously sentence the offender to prison. Judges known as Brehens would determine the fine to be paid based on the severity of the injury or death, the status or amount of land and cattle the offender held amongst other things. This eric or honour price however, allowed the upper classes to weigh the option of killing someone with how much it cost and depending on the wealth of the person plotting harm on another may have only been a minor inconvenience. Some people just wanted rid of certain people and were willing to pay the price. Charles Allen, who wrote A History of England published in 1792, gives this example. Quote, the most important act of James's reign, meaning King James I, was the judicious and successful attempt he made to civilise the people of Ireland, who were still in the very lowest state of barbarism. They had not yet risen above that rude condition when murder might be atoned for by paying a small sum to the relations of the deceased, and when every man had a price affixed to his head, which was there called his Eric. When Sir William Fitzwilliam, being Lord Deputy, told Hugh Maguire, one of the Irish chieftains, that he meant to send a sheriff into Fermanagh, which a little before had been made a county and subjected to English law. Your sheriff, Maguire said, shall be welcome to me, but let me know beforehand his eric, or the price of his head, that if my people cut it off, I may levy the money upon the county. Unquote. A sound man Charles Allen seemed to be, unashamedly expressing his colonialist mentality of any culture outside of his own being barbaristic, a very common stab made towards the Irish at the time. But his point on the matter was made. Now this quote brings me to a convenient segue. 
This Hugh Maguire, or A. Magoor's response, is what I imagine a typical one, with a dash of cheek common still on the Irish tongue. A. Magoor was Lord of Fermanagh, which is an English title, a title that comes with the responsibility of enforcing English law. Yet he threatened the clearly unwanted sheriff's life by referring to the consequence of native Irish law. And if that wasn't enough, he would impose the fine for the man's life to the newly founded county which belonged to the Queen. If I were William Fitzwilliam, this response would completely justify the necessity of a sheriff in Magoor's land. And send a sheriff he did. Captain Humphrey Willis, newly appointed sheriff of Fermanagh, was the unfortunate man with the job of keeping an eye on Magoor in 1593. Enniskillen and the Lord of Fermanagh A. Magoor had inherited his lands in Fermanagh, a county in the south of the province of Ulster in 1589 from his father, Cúconacht Og Magoor, along with the castle of Enniskillen, which had been built around 1428 as the family's centre of control by Magoor's ancestor of the same name. The castle is a classic keep of the era, a three-storey rectangular building with attic access, technically making it four storeys, with an apex roof on top. The building is wrapped with a relatively low but thick skirting wall and surrounded by the Iron River in a great defensive position to guard a critical crossing point into Ulster and a bottleneck in the river between Upper and Lower Loch Iron. Though the Magoors had only begun to inherit their official title of On Magoor since 1302 when the first king of the name, Don Carrick Magoor, died, they can trace their lineage to Cormac MacArt, king of all Ireland during the 3rd century who was legendary for his lineage to Con of the Hundred Battles and his part in the story of Finn McCool. But by the 12th century, the Magoors had established themselves as a powerful clan in Ulster, beside O'Neill and O'Donnell. I'm going to interject here for a moment to talk about Enniskillen Castle in its current state. I went to Enniskillen for a look around a few months ago. It's still pretty much intact and there's a museum inside which I'm always excited about when researching a location to see if there's any new info I come across. Only this time, I was pretty surprised at their setup. The main keep, though still called Maguire's Keep, had been made into a shrine of British colonialism, hosting medals, swords, guns and armour they had used in South Africa, India, the Americas and more. The displays were grand, but within the entire building and surrounding barracks, there was only one small room with a bit of information about the history pre-1609. Barely a sense of its pivotal role in one of Ireland's great wars, or the Magoors who had built it and lived there for so long only a few maps and boards of information, hardly paying respect to its ancient Irish history. So if you visit, just be prepared for that. Anyway, back to the story. The passing of land and title to A. Magoor was the first since Queen Elizabeth I had essentially created the county of Fermanagh as a possession of the crown around the year 1570. King became lord and the son of Cúconacht became resentful of the oppressive ruling of his native lands. From what we know of A. Magoor already, it's clear he had no interest in remaining under foreign rule after gaining lordship, but simply refusing to comply with the monarchy was likely to get yourself placed on the end of a noose. As sheriffs were being appointed in counties across the island, the county of Monaghan was undergoing a transitional event that would in time affect the whole island. The clan leader, Ross McMahona, had died in 1589 after submitting to the Queen two years before. This left an issue common in Ireland at this time, when rights of title were contested between English and Irish law. A. Rua McMahona was the heir according to English law, and got his way after travelling to Dublin, but at a cost. He was now stuck between the minor McMahona clans, and Brian McA McMahona, the rightful Tarnishde, or heir under Irish law, who were banding together to contest his rights, 
And on his other side, the Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam wanted no overruler of Monaghan at all. Rather, he wanted it completely divided and controlled by the Crown. So how did A. Rua McMahon secure his position? With bribes, of course. It's recorded as a heavy tax of 700 cattle per year to which he owes Fitzwilliam as part of their deal to gain the contested lordship. This was 300 more per year than the previous tax. Seems like an incentive for Fitzwilliam to me. Unfortunately, it's thought A. Rua McMahon not being able to pay this tax led to his initial arrest in October 1589. In truth, however, Fitzwilliam wanted him dead and was looking for an excuse to do so. The miner McMahonas had contacted Fitzwilliam looking to submit their lands to the Crown independently of A. Rua. His death meant Fitzwilliam could meet the miner McMahonas once and his own in granting them pieces of a partitioned Monaghan with no leader, of which Fitzwilliam stood to receive even more taxes. In 1590, A. Rua McMahona is put on trial and charged with treason. He had been accused of raiding and stealing cattle, most likely of which he planned to pay this high tax with, and his final charge was interfering with the Sheriff of Monaghan. Something plenty of Irish were guilty of up to this point, but in this case the Lord Deputy William Fitzwilliam treated it as a great opportunity to show how disobedience would be rewarded, and also how to divide and conquer a region of the country with few casualties. The jury of the trial was carefully curated by Fitzwilliam, mostly made up of Irishmen, but unlike the English on the jury, the Irishmen had been held captive during the trial and were treated poorly until they agreed to sentence McMahona to death. Two days after his sentencing, A. Rua McMahona was executed by hanging outside of his home. Fitzwilliam divided his lands and redistributed its candreds, meaning subdivisions of the county, to more loyal and manageable lords, as well as the minor McMahonas as promised. The plan worked perfectly for the Lord Deputy, and now the English were looking for slip-ups. Any breach of law, small or large, to pull the Irish up on, and sometimes those slip-ups meant death if the result was positive to further their conquest. And this example of blatant set-up and murder showed the Irish how vulnerable they were when divided. The introduction of Captain Humphrey Willis, Sheriff of Fermanagh, shortly after McMahon's death was the breaking point for A. Magour. Willis had a bad reputation with the Irish in Ulster already, as he had previously served in Tyrconnell, modern Donegal. Him and his men had been reported of awful acts on the locals, raiding their lands, tormenting the women and torturing the men. Until the young clan chief, A. Rua O'Donnell, having successfully escaped Dublin Castle after being unjustly imprisoned for almost five years since the age of 15, made his way to Wicklow by foot, barely dressed in a brutal Irish winter and eventually arriving back in Tyrconnell and becoming chief after his father's abdication, gave Willis the option of leaving peaceably or forcibly in February 1592. It's quite a story on its own. The deep hatred O'Donnell had for the English after what they had done to him and his people must have been clear, because Captain Willis chose to leave hastily enough, but only to move to the next county, Fermanagh. Willis continued his careless rampage with a force of 100 men in Fermanagh once he had been appointed to his new position. McGuire called upon his allies from neighbouring territories for men to do as O'Donnell had and rid the sheriff from Fermanagh, and soon... Hundreds of men arrived. Gunmen known as shot, pikemen dressed in heavy armour holding pikes 10 to 15 foot in length and bowmen under command of Cormac McBarren O'Neill, Donoghue O'Hagan and Donal O'Hagan quickly came to support Magour and together they chased down the sheriff into a church and laid siege to the building. A week went by until negotiations took place and Captain Willis's release was secured under Crown official A. O'Neill, the second Earl of Tyrone 
and father-in-law to A. Magoor. I'm going to refer to A. O'Neill as Tyrone in future, so he doesn't get mixed up with everyone named A. or the other O'Neills in the story, as he plays a vital role as it develops. The sheriff went free, and the minor upset in Fermanagh had ended for now, but no one knew the magnitude of occurrences that would come from it. Things could turn bad for Magoor very quickly once reports hit Dublin. Gaelic kings, chiefs and lords were being murdered for simply saying no to the likes of the Governor of Connacht, Sir Richard Bingham, who was eyeing up Ulster to add to his landmass, or to Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam, who ordered the execution of somewhere around 2,000 men of the Spanish Armada that had been wrecked and washed ashore on the coast of Ireland a few years previously, in 1588. Sir Richard Bingham and his brother George supposedly oversaw more than a thousand of these executions themselves on all ranks of the Spanish army. But why had the Spanish Armada been wrecked on the Irish coasts? The ships had been blown off course by the terrible conditions the seas surrounding Ireland are known for. But more importantly, they were there because Spain was at war with England. And this was the answer. This is the kind of large-scale international support Magua and the Gaelic leaders needed to once and for all get the English off their backs and out of the country for good. Philip II of Spain was king of the most powerful empire in the world and by this point England were nowhere near the colonial power they would become. In addition, the Spanish-Anglo war was heavily driven by the Reformation. The Spanish had been at war in Europe defending Catholic land from the Protestant forces of the Dutch and English. But now Philip II looked to directly invade England and reinstate Catholicism in a kind of crusade. The armada that had been destroyed was supposed to be the beginning of that invasion force. But after a naval battle near France and having run out of supplies due to poor planning, the ships decided to retreat back to Spain. But winds forced their course north where between 5 to 7 thousand Spaniards drowned on the rocky Irish coast. And most of those who survived the wreckage would not live long afterwards. Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam sent this order to his officers after hearing of the wreck. Quote, Whereas the distressed fleet of the Spaniards by tempest and contrary winds, though the providence of God had been driven on the coast, where it is thought great treasure and also ordnance, munitions, armour hath been cast, we authorise you to haul all hulls and to apprehend and execute all Spaniards found there of any quality soever. Torture may be used in prosecuting this inquiry. Unquote. Fitzwilliam sanctioned pretty despicable actions in order to claim the spoils of the wreck, which allegedly included gold from the American colonies. Although some Irish played their own part in the mass slaughter in search of these riches, harbouring Spaniards meant torture and death for the sympathising Irish. But despite the threat on these sympathisers, a good number of Spanish did survive. In East Ulster, sorely Bree MacDonald was helping them escape to Scotland. In the West, Brian O'Rourke aided their escape to mainland Europe, and the Earl Tyrone actually took some Spanish in permanently to help train his men, though he told Fitzwilliam he had, quote, put a large number of Spaniards to the sword, unquote. I don't know if his hands were completely clean of the matter, but regardless, the Ulster leaders knew there was an ally in Spain. They just needed a solid connection. This connection arrived to A. Magour in the form of the Archbishop of Armagh, Edmund McGarron, or Edmund McSharon, an integral figure to Magour and the other Irish leaders. He was acting as the voice of Irish freedom and religious rights in Europe and had travelled extensively to gather support for the oppressed people. The Archbishop's travels have been documented and he got around. In 1585 he was in Spain, in 1587 he was in Rome, 88 Lisbon, 89 was Brussels and by 1591 he was back in Spain. 
McSharon was travelling in order to make vital connections that might aid the Catholic Irish in a military uprising. The Spanish and Irish had ties mostly rooted in common religion, but as a byproduct of their Catholic beliefs, the country of Spain served as a place of exile for the Catholic Irish of the First and Second Desmond Rebellions, two anti-Reformation uprisings in the province of Munster a few years previous. Emin was contacting those exiles along with some of the survivors of the Armada that made it back to mainland Europe and the support was building for Ireland but news coming from the island was worsening. The time came to request a meeting with the King of Spain and in September 1592 he was granted that meeting in Burgos, northern Spain to report on the status of Ireland and request an army to aid the northern Irish leaders. But his proposition needed to be militarily and politically valid to be taken seriously. Queen Elizabeth had been excommunicated by the Pope in 1570, so it was fair game, and the Spanish were already at war with England, so the allying of two Catholic leaders and armies made sense. For a long time, Ireland has been viewed as a potential launching place to invade England, even during World War II, and the Spanish had already planned to land a force in Waterford before the Armada disaster, but it never came to fruition. King Philip II greeted the Archbishop as a friend, and must have genuinely felt that this plan could greatly enhance their potential success of overthrowing the Protestant monarch, but also the opportunity to help their religious counterparts. But before he would commit to any major agreement, he needed assurances directly from Ireland. How strong a force could the Irish muster, and who would lead them? Emin was bound for Ireland to gather the rebels and inform them of Spanish aid, with the written word of Philip II to board a merchant ship with servants and victuals supplied for his journey. The Archbishop received two servants, 40 pounds of biscuits, 12 loaves of bread, two live sheep, 12 live chickens, beef, pork, raisins, oranges, lemons, sugar, cheese. It was an amazing spread. I'm not sure if it was because of his religious status, which the King clearly had respect for, the importance to the success of the mission, or a little boast of wealth. Maybe all three. McSharon made it to the port of Drogheda in December 1592, after a journey not as safe as he may have hoped pirates, rough seas and patrolling English ships being a massive threat to any sea travel. He wrote in a letter himself that he, quote, escaped from various perils at sea before setting foot on Irish soil, unquote. But nonetheless, he got there in one piece. The fears of Spanish invasion were growing within the English council and McSharron's efforts were being closely monitored by the English, both in London and in Dublin, well before his landing in Ireland. On the 3rd of January, 1593, George Bingham wrote a report on McSharron's activities to his brother Richard, the governor of Connacht. It reads, quote, James O'Crean, an English spy, came lately out of the north from Hugh Rowe O'Donnell, or Arua O'Donnell, where, as he said, he saw seven bishops, some of them he named unto me, others some he could not name. But the chiefest among them was the Bishop McGowan, whom the Pope hath made Lord Primate of all Ireland. They were in great council for two or three days together and have made some great dispatch of certain letters which shall be sent out of hand by Bishop O'Healy to the Pope and the King of Spain. Unquote. The Archbishop and his companions travelled into O'Donnell's land of Tyrconnell to receive letters from A. Rua addressed to King Philip himself and another letter to the Irish exiles in Lisbon. From Tyrconnell they then travelled into Magour's land of Fermanagh. A. Magour met with McSharron, Brian Ogo Rurik of Brefni, Theobald, Richard and John Burke of Mayo, along with the seven bishops of Ireland, at his home of Enniskillen Castle in May 1593, where he wrote a letter to the King of Spain, confirming an uprising in the name of Catholicism, and request for troops to, quote, 
help in some form to these afflicted Irish princes. Unquote. These letters of great importance were handed to the Archbishop of Tume, James O'Healy, as mentioned in the Bingham Report. And somehow he made it to Drogheda Port without being harassed or captured and made a successful journey to Spain, landing in July. While O'Healy was at sea though, the tensions were rising for the English, fully aware of the communication between the Irish and Spanish. Richard Bingham wrote to Lord Burley, the Queen's advisor, on the 6th of June, quote, They are all combined by these treacherous priests and Romish bishops whereof I advertised your honour long ago. Amongst them there is one McGarren, which determined himself the primate that doth much mischief, for he is still with Maguire and always at hand with the traitors to set them forward to every rebellious action. Riding on his chief horse with his staff and sure of mail, and hath been the chiefest man to combine all the north together, assuring them of coming of Spaniards and other foreign aid. Truly right honourable, they are ill people these of Ulster, for they stand obedient to no law. Unquote. Magour O'Donnell and the other Irish leaders must have felt an amount of weight lifted from their shoulders, knowing that soon they would be able to roll over the English in Ireland with their new allies. But they knew the English were being informed of the growing relationship between themselves and Spain, and that information would have given the Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam just cause to enter Ulster on suspicion of treachery to arrest everyone involved, which could result in a similar situation to Monaghan a few years before. It was not a time to stay still, but the Irish had a plan. A plan to provoke Fitzwilliam into a position that would favour the Irishman. With just over a thousand men in his command in May 1593, A. Magua looked west, into Richard Bingham's territory of Connacht, firstly targeting Richard's brother, George Bingham, in Ballymote Castle, Sligo, stealing every cow he could see and burning anything that would lie. The destruction continued after success in Sligo when he marched deep into Roscommon in late June. On approaching the village of Tulsk on a morning dense with fog, some English scouts on horseback came within sight of Magua's men. Once the Englishmen saw through the fog at the number of men, they began riding back towards Tulsk to warn the rest. The Irish pursued, killing some on the tail end of the scout group. The scouts retreated to their main body, all under the cover of fog. The groups of men were like grey shadows in a sea of white, and no one could clearly see who was commanding each party, including Magua who was not yet aware that the man leading the English troop was Richard Bingham, the governor of Connacht. The two groups clashed, but as soon as Bingham realised the weight of the force he was dealing with, he withdrew from the skirmish, resulting in few losses on either side, but one of major importance to Magua. The Archbishop of Armagh, the voice of Irish freedom and connection to Spanish aid, Eamon McSharon was killed. All that remained was his written word in the pocket of O'Healy, determined for King Philip II. Magua and his raiding party started their bittersweet march back to Fermanagh with all of their spoils, claimed cattle and their enemy territories sacked but with a handful less men and one of significant importance. The members of the council in Dublin had entered a cul-de-sac of debate about how to approach the conflict. They didn't have much support from London so money and men were tight meaning an offensive would have to be a last resort. Instead they tried diplomacy which made the political climate in Ireland a bit difficult. Some were not happy about entering talks with the so-called traitors. Even still, the Lord Deputy granted protection to Magua, during which time he was supposed to disband his army. But cheekily, he wrote to the Lord Deputy saying he wished his time under protection to be elongated and to also extend to protect his rebellious friends. 
He claimed he could not disband his army as he had promised their employment for a certain duration and he also wished the disbanding of Bingham's men beforehand to assure their safety. He was asking a lot of Fitzwilliam and rather than send a reply to Magoor, the Lord Deputy instead wrote to the Earl Tyrone about the matter and although questions of Tyrone's loyalties were beginning to travel around the country, the Lord Deputy put trust in Tyrone to help resolve the northern issues. With the help of Tyrone, Magoor managed to have his protection stretched for three months, beginning around the start of August. But Fitzwilliam was preparing to launch an attack into Fermanagh at the first whiff of rebellion. A month after these negotiations, a gale-forced wind of rebellion swept east, led by Magoor, raiding into Monaghan and encroaching the centre of English-occupied Ireland, the Pale. The months of back and forth were simply used as an opportunity for the Irish to plan and gather their men there was never any intention of disbanding or submitting. On the 11th of September, 1593, orders were issued to the Marshal of the Royal Army in Ireland, Sir Henry Bagenal, who was to meet with the Earl of Tyrone, A. O'Neill, and march on Enniskillen to put an end to Magoura's rebellion. The Marshal Bagenal's title and strength, matched with Tyrone's power and familiarity of the rebels, made a capable duo of command over their joint force of men. Them both being residents and landowners in Ulster made it partially their responsibility to suppress the uprising too, so it made sense why they were matched up for the campaign, but I can't imagine either were too happy about the situation. Henry Bagenal's father, Nicholas, was the first of their name in Ireland after Nicholas fled from England on murder charges, but he managed to secure a pardon with the help of Con O'Neill, Tyrone's grandfather. However, the Bagenals still found themselves constantly fighting with factions of the O'Neill clan after receiving lands in Newry, and as time went on and Tyrone became more active in politics and military campaign in Ireland, Nicholas began doubting Tyrone's commitment against the Catholic Irish and his faith in Queen Elizabeth's crown. Henry Bagenal later inherited all of his royal positions from his father Nicholas in 1590, as well as his complete disdain for the Catholic Irish and suspicions of Tyrone's loyalties. The Earl Tyrone was of course Irish, spoke the language and had a millennia of ancestry in the province Bagenal wanted to expand in. But Tyrone, as Irish as he was, was a servant of the English crown, so they were forced to get along, kind of like two kids in class who don't like each other but get paired up on a project. Now imagine one of those kids fancies the other's sister and starts going out with them. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Tyrone had eloped with Mabel Bagenal in 1591 in Turvey House in Dublin after Henry had forbade it. Bagenal continued to protest the marriage and held the £1,000 dowry from Tyrone, but Tyrone didn't seem overly bothered as long as it annoyed Henry. All seems pretty petty. But more seriously, the Marshal was spreading word of what he perceived to be Tyrone's lack of loyalty to the Crown to anyone who would listen. The Earl Tyrone had been raised in the Pale, supposedly around Balgriffin in North Dublin, which is actually where I grew up. After Tyrone's father was killed when he was a youth, he was educated by the English and once old enough was sent back to Ulster as a bridge between the Irish and English. The people in Ulster were more likely to accept an Irish O'Neill ruler as opposed to an Englishman, even if he was under the thumb of Elizabeth. Tyrone had forged ties with the Irish families in Ulster. Two of his daughters were married to A. Magour and A. Rua O'Donnell and he had married A. Rua O'Donnell's sister before eloping with Mabel. He would have told the English how these were methods of peacekeeping to keep the Irish lords close in his council and stop them from rebelling. But some feared that uniting the clans posed a bigger potential threat. The imprisoning of A. Rua O'Donnell I mentioned earlier was exactly for that reason. Because the English thought an alliance between Tyrone and O'Donnell would be too risky. Bagenal was of the same mind. 
He thought better to split up the Irish factions to make them easier to suppress if they revolted, rather than forcing more friendly diplomatics on them. Richard Bingham had mentioned similar concerns to Burley, the Queen's advisor in London, after the sacking of Ballymote Castle, saying, quote, I pray God that the Earl Tyrone forget not these great graces and favours which Her Majesty and Your Honour had bestowed upon him. For his own foster brother, with his own shot and servants, were at the burning of Ballymote, and all men knoweth here that Hugh Roe O'Donnell and Maguire be wholly at his commandment, and now allied to him by marriage of his daughters. Unquote. The Earl of Tyrone seemed a more valuable servant to the Queen than the Marshal, though, and managed to hold all of his lands independently of Bagnall, who was supposed to be Chief Commissioner of Ulster, and was after the position of President of Ulster, which would give him the entire command over the province. But that wasn't possible with Tyrone in the picture. Captain Lee Thomas, who served with Tyrone and Bagnall in this campaign, later wrote to the Queen about how serious Tyrone was taking the accusations of disloyalty and that he had offered trial by combat against Bagnall to settle the matter. He wrote, quote, He will, if it so stand with your Majesty's pleasure, offer himself to the Marshal, who hath been the chiefest instrument against him, to prove with his sword that he hath most wrongfully accused him and because it is no conquest for him to overthrow a man ever held in the world to be of most cowardly behaviour he will in defence of his innocency allow his adversary to come armed against him naked to encourage him rather to accept of his challenge i am bold to say thus for the earl because i know his valour and am persuaded he will perform it Unquote. the first campaign of the war Henry Bagenal marched towards Enniskillen with a force of 763 footmen, 118 cairn who were light Irish infantry and 144 horsemen, planning to join with the Earl Tyrone who promised 200 horsemen and 1,200 footmen. But when Bagenal met Tyrone near Enniskillen, he had only brought half the infantry he promised. Regardless, they commanded a serious host of men, nearly 1,500 footmen including the cairn and 344 horsemen and they began what they thought to be a simple campaign to end a small uprising, when in actual fact, it was the first campaign of the Nine Years' War. Crossing the River Erne into Magour's country to suppress the Irish rebels, clear a route to Ulster, and if possible, return with Magour's head were the main objectives. But the land's natural defences of hills, lakelands, rivers and bogs meant they were severely limited in the routes the Royal Army could take, and those routes had all been blockaded and manned by Magour and his allies. The crossing near Enniskillen was immediately written off. It was far too dangerous and if they wanted to cross there they would more than likely need to siege the castle itself. And though the Royal Army was well equipped they had no artillery in either Bagenal or Tyrone's ranks. Next they looked at the crossing further southeast near Lisgool Abbey. This is where Magour's heaviest troops lay with plenty of guns and deep trenches to make the crossing difficult if not impossible without artillery support. Bagenal seemed to think it was possible if they split forces and attempted to flank Magour. He offered two strategies to Tyrone on how they should attack Lisgool, but Tyrone shot both ideas down, concerned about their strength after splitting their forces. So, unable to decide or find any other suitable crossing, they looked to what seemed their final option, the ford near Belique in the northwest, and began their march on the 8th of October. Two days later, the Royal Army approached the manned crossing called Ochcoolun, near Belik Castle, and prepared for battle. Magour had been glued to the English army since their arrival near his castle, and now he sat horseback on the outskirts of his army of around 900 men at the Ford Crossing in Belik. 
Magyar's army was made up of mostly gallo glass and red shank mercenaries from Scotland, most of whom were pretty poorly equipped in comparison to Bagenal and Tyrone's men. A. Rua O'Donnell, chief of Tyr Connell, which was just north of Belik, added to Magura's guard, but again with outdated swordsmen and some horses, under command of Niall Garve O'Donnell, who had a bit of a rocky relationship with A. Rua, having only recently submitted to him. On the Irish side of the banks, they set up their ranged units on each flank of the crossing, a lot of whom were only armed with bows. The infantry held the centre with the help of some man-made defences to discourage a charge. But on the opposite side, the Royal Army's positions, equipment and number were far greater. Caliver guns and long-ranged muskets took a wider flank than that of the Irish and had cover of rocks and trees. The front line, known as the vanguard of English pikemen, were heavily armoured and very capable at keeping swordsmen at bay with their long pikes. And supporting the pike formation was Tyrone and Bagenal, positioned behind them with their horsemen. It looked from the start as though the Irish were about to be steamrolled. But what seemed a reality to the English army was not in fact the complete truth. As to Bagenal's suspicions, the Earl Tyrone did have his hands in both camps. And here we begin to see his plan take action. Shots began firing on either side of the river, but the English guns quickly got the better of the two forces, with Irish arrows hardly reaching their targets and their few gunmen struggling to make it through the Englishman's natural cover. Captain John Dowdall, alongside Captain Lee, prepared the vanguard of pikemen to make the crossing over the river in. Wading their way through the water, a few shots came at them from the Irish, but it wasn't worth the lead that left the barrels. The Irish line guarding the crossing, who saw the pikemen were succeeding across the fort, began to pull back from the defended position, knowing well they wouldn't stand much of a chance. Once their orderly retreat had been noticed, and the vanguard had halfway completed the crossing, Tyrone began gathering his horsemen to charge. The ford was deemed suitable enough for multiple horses to pass side by side, so the cavalry darted for the bank, splashing their way through the swollen river and through the pikemen who were still crossing. The Irishman's calm retreat was beginning to turn into a chaotic rout. The horsemen reached land and began cutting men down in their dozens, while more English flowed over the crossing behind them. Arrows flew through the air towards the charge and dropped several horses from beneath their riders, but the wave of cavalry was thick and they continued unwavering. Tyrone took a spear to the leg in the melee and left himself vulnerable, but he continued leading the charge. The Irish army began to flee, and the horsemen continued to chase them down for miles, slaughtering all within sight, and Magoor narrowly escaped with his life. 300 out of the 900 guard at Balik were killed, while just three from the Royal Army died. At this point, it seems appropriate to mention the reliability of reported numbers during the war. Though Irish sources are few and far between, there are plenty of numbers thrown about from English sources, but they commonly increase both the number of Irish they faced and their counted dead, as well as reduce the reports of their own dead and injured, so they're to be taken with a grain of salt. The battle was a crushing defeat for the Irish, and not a great start for O'Donnell and Magura's war against the English. Tyrone returned to his home of Dungannon and Tyrone to heal up, but Bagenal kept busy raiding the lands in Fermanagh not loyal to the crown and dismantling the blockade at Lisgul. Bagenal boasted that Magura wouldn't dare show his face outside of his castle now after how badly he thought he had beaten him. But he was still wary of the Ulsterman. I don't think he was fully convinced himself that that was the end of that, as he states in a journal after the event, quote, First, what course is to be taken for stop of new aids from coming to Maguire from Tyrone, Tyrconnell or Scotland? Unquote. However, letters were forwarded to the Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam that Magua had been dealt with, 
Bagenal claiming they had beaten their full force and Fitzwilliam was content that the uprising had been mostly suppressed. Fitzwilliam and Bagenal had lapped up the predetermined outcome that A. O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, had offered them on a plate. Yes, the Irish lost the battle and Tyrone fought against them. So how could this be seen as a positive for the Irish? Let's have a look. The Earl firstly arriving with fewer men than promised had guided Bagenal's decision to cross the Erne away from the modern forces of Magour who were actually loaned to him from Tyrone. This forced Bagenal and the English to cross at Balik in the far northwest of Ireland a long way off a potential supply line from Dublin and deep in enemy territory. The Irish army guarding the Balik crossing was carefully mustered to be a poor and underwhelming force in comparison to Bagnall and Tyrone's, consisting of mostly Scots mercenaries and without any strong reinforcements from Magour O'Neill or Aru O'Donnell. Even the commander Niall Garve O'Donnell was chosen to take part as the Irish didn't trust him and his death wouldn't affect their plans, though he did survive through the defeat. This allowed Tyrone to face an army he knew would rout easily when attacked with modern pike, shot and cavalry formations. The losses on the Irish side wouldn't drastically affect their power as Scots mercenaries were pretty easily come by and Bagenal would report the state of the Irish forces as the usual kind of rabble and would be content they were of little threat when in reality it was just a show for Bagenal and the other captains of the English army put on by Tyrone and the other Irish leaders. I'm sure the Earl hadn't planned on being speared in the leg, but that only helped him convince the Lord Deputy and the Queen that he had bled in battle for the crown. He wasn't shy about flaunting that injury around for exactly that reason. The English had been led into a false sense of security, and Tyrone's cover was maintained and arguably strengthened, but it did cost the lives of hundreds of Scottish mercenaries. Sacrificing men for a grand strategy wasn't uncommon in warfare, but knowingly sending hundreds of men to their death as a deception gives me a sense of the ruthlessness the Earl of Tyrone possessed. All of the issues in Fermanagh that were keeping the English administration busy were designed to do just that by the Earl. It was a distraction technique, while he prepared in Tyrone, training men, acquiring munitions, planning their strategies and keeping in touch with King Philip II of Spain. Creating ties with marriage, forming alliances and using the Irishman's personal motivations to the cause's benefit. Tyrone was uniting the northern half of the island all under the nose of the English administration. It was genius, and it's just the first example of Tyrone's grand plan. On the English march back east after clearing the blockade and crossing at Lisgool, Bagenal left Captain John Dowdall of the Vanguard in Castle Ski with a garrison of 300 men and 15 boats to man the River Erne, tasked with the objective to report on the men of Ulster and, if possible, capture and prosecute Magour for acts of treason. Henry Bagenal marched to clones the next day on the 21st of October and disbanded the rest of his men. Captain Dowdall at Castle Ski, today known as Balfour Castle, was not a man left in charge as an afterthought by Bagenal. A veteran in Ireland, active in the English army since 1560, knighted by Queen Elizabeth I and not in any way a friend of the Catholic Irish. In 1580, Dowdall, while acting commander in Yall, County Cork, captured a Franciscan priest named Father O'Neillan and had him killed as a message to the Catholics of Ireland at the outbreak of the Second Desmond Rebellion. But just killing a priest wasn't enough for Dowdall. The later writings by a Father Mooney in 1627 tells us what happened, and it's pretty dark. Quote, First they took him to the gate which is called Trinity Gate, and tied his hands behind his back, and having fastened heavy stones to his feet, thrice pulled him up with ropes from the earth to the top of the tower, and left him hanging there for a space. 
At length, after many insults and tortures, he was hung with his head down and his feet in the air at the mill near the monastery, and hanging there a long time, while he lived, he never uttered an impatient word, but like a good Christian, incessantly repeated prayers, now aloud, now in a low voice. At length, the soldiers were ordered to shoot at him, as though he were a target. But yet, that his suffering might be longer and more cruel, they might not aim at his head or heart, but as much as they pleased at any other part of his body. After he received many balls, one with a cruel mercy loaded his gun with two balls and shot him through the heart. Thus did he receive glorious crown of martyrdom. Dowdall did his duty on reporting numbers of men on meetings of the Ulster leaders, and he even skirmished with the Irish on occasion, despite writing continually of his men weakening with sickness. But only weeks after the events at Balik, it became evident that to have any control of the region and free use of the river, Enniskillen Castle, the home of A. Magour, had to be taken. The reports Dowdall was sending of Magour's actions during the winter of 1593 and 1594 showed clear intent that Magour wasn't near finished. He continued to meet with A. Rua O'Donnell and Brian O'Gorrook and was gathering men from Tyrone, Tyrconnell and Scotland, just as Henry Bagnall had warned. Boats and artillery were commissioned in preparation and the command was fully handed over to Captain Dowdall. The Siege of Enniskillen Dowdall left from Castle Ski on the 24th of January with around 300 men by boat en route to the home of A. Magour. They landed on the eastern bank of the river which acted as a moat surrounding the island castle of Enniskillen and set camp preparing their next move. The next morning, Dowdall sent word to Richard Bingham, requesting his brother George Bingham's assistance with reinforcements and additional siege equipment. But he crossed the river anyway, landing on the north side of the island with his men to begin digging trenches for cannons and gunmen within 80 metres of the castle walls. Captain Dowdall held his position, pestering the men within the barn walls and the building itself with musket shots and volleys from his three falconet cannons. But his chances of achieving anything were seriously unlikely, undermanned and lacking adequate artillery. He knew he just had to wait it out until Bingham arrived. And six days after Dowdall's arrival, George Bingham, brother to Richard, governor of Connacht, at the head of 300 men arrived to the west side of the castle and set up their position on a hill that overlooked the short, thick skirting wall. With full view inside the walls of the castle grounds, Bingham set up two additional cannons, one Robinet and a Falker cannon, as depicted on the detailed drawing of the siege by John Thomas. The artillery did a great job of covering the English troops and keeping the defending Irish away from the outer crenellated walls. But even with the addition of Bingham's cannons, they wouldn't be enough to breach an entrance to Enniskillen and both captains knew it. Within Dowdall's camp though, he held a prisoner called Connor O'Cassidy, a former messenger from Magour. Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam had sent him handcuffed from Dublin to accompany Dowdall, hoping he could be of use. And if he didn't prove himself useful, the captain was instructed to hang him. Several of the boats the Englishmen had arrived in were equipped for siege. Two large cots with ladders on board and a larger closed-top boat with gun loops and 67 men inside it. The three boats made their way to the south of the island and the largest boat began firing. The castle now completely surrounded and distracted by waves of shots from all sides, Conor O'Cassidy was told to guide a smaller boat to a weak spot on the castle's outer walls, alongside a group of 100 men armed with pickaxes. The anchored boat floated down the west side of the wall and the group of men began smashing down the wall by hand. Once the breach was made and the Irish had realised, they set fire to two buildings by the opening to stop the Englishmen. But eventually the fires went out after it had spread and damaged the water gate. 
the path was now clear to make ground for the English. The ending of the first siege of Enniskillen is somewhat controversial and still today nobody knows exactly what happened. Once Dowdall and his men entered the castle grounds, the Irish surrendered. But surrender wasn't an option that Dowdall had offered. Whatever way the Irish came to leave the main building and home of A. Magour, whether having requested talks or abandoning the castle after threats of it being blown up, Captain John Dowdall saw every person inside killed. The garrison of 36 men and the rest of the inhabitants of 30 to 40 women and children put to the sword. The accounted numbers of dead vary, and rather than Dowdall lessening the numbers of dishonourable slaughter to potentially reduce the public and governmental backlash, he boosted the numbers, claiming he killed 158 or 200 inhabitants, almost as if the boast. But A. Magour was nowhere to be seen. Well aware of the movements of the English in the area, he had been following Dowdall with a small group of Cairn on his approach to Enniskillen, and rather than participate in what he probably knew was a lost cause, he sought aid from his northern allies to retake his castle once it had fallen. Captain Dowdall left a garrison of 30 men at Enniskillen, commanded by James a Castle, and the walls and gates were mended. But the taking of the castle didn't calm hostilities in the region. Ambushes and skirmishes were frequent as well as robberies and attacks on a smaller scale. The Englishmen garrisoned around the border of Ulster were becoming more concerned of the danger outside of their strongholds, and they had every right to be. By late May, Commander Castle of Enniskillen wrote a letter to Dublin expressing concerns that a major force of Gale had entered into Fermanagh. He wrote, quote, May it please your honours to understand that the seventh day of this month of May, the traitor Maguire came into this country and the Earl of Tyrone's brother Cormac McBaron O'Neill and brought with them to the number of 600 horsemen and 14 or 1500 footmen. They came with the intent to take the castle of Enniskillen, either by treachery if it might prevail or else by force. Unquote. A. Magour had returned with Cormac McBaron O'Neill, brother of A. O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, prepared to take back command of Enniskillen. Magour and Cormac O'Neill couldn't go straight for the castle in a large-scale siege as Dowdall had, however, as at this point he had no artillery. Any time they got close to the castle, a castle launched shots from his long-ranged artillery now mounted at the walls and on a large boat outside the castle, forcing the Irish to retreat. And whenever a castle sallied out to pester the Irish troops, he was forced to retreat by the overwhelming numbers of Irish. Magour's only course of action was to try and starve them out. Patiently, Magour and O'Neill closed the castle off from the outside world, blocking paths into and out of the surrounding area and clearing the region of any resources the garrison of the castle depended on. A castle still kept contact with the council in Dublin by way of the river, but as weeks went on it became more and more difficult for the English garrison. His letters grew more urgent and desperate as he prayed for speedy relief. Quote, there is nothing left but any subject within 20 miles. Unquote. His final letter to leave the castle begins bluntly with want of provision. Finally, on the 11th of July, the Irishmen had cut off their last line of supply by building earthworks and blocking the River Erne at Lisgool. The council in Dublin had heard the castle's calls for help and appointed Sir Henry Duke and Sir Edward Herbert to relieve the siege of Enniskillen. They were to leave from Cavan with 600 footmen and 46 horsemen and carts of supplies. Duke and Herbert protested that the number of men appointed to them wouldn't be enough, even with the promise of Sir Richard Bingham's assistance and addition of 250 men, who were too far away to join in time anyway. It was a risky expedition. The English relief force left Cavan quickly on the 4th of August on a four-day march to Fermanagh. But on the third day, their march was interrupted. 
Magyar and O'Neill herded the English movements towards them and planned an ambush, splitting 1,000 men from their sieging army. On the 7th of August, Henry Duke and Edward Herbert approached a crossing over the River Arney in a marching formation of three divisions, the vanguard, which were mostly pikemen, the battle or middle, and the rear guard, with the relief supplies spread in between the groups. The great lakeland area they marched through meant the cavalry men had to dismount to avoid getting stuck in bogs, and also made their path quite predictable. The Englishmen had reached the river crossing when cracks and bangs of shots halted their march, and men began to fall. A unit of Irish gunmen on the opposite side of the River Arnie began reloading for a second volley, while the vanguard pikemen stood shocked in their formation. But on both flanks of the English army, more Irish shots appeared on raised ground, raining lead bullets down into the group who were beginning to panic. The rear guard were beginning to break formation in the chaos when Cormac McBaron O'Neill appeared and charged the unorganised rear with his unit of pikemen. The English fired back at the flanks were completely surrounded and in complete disarray. It was hopeless. The only way out was forward. Sir Henry Duke commanded the vanguard to charge the Irish shots across the river in a last-ditch attempt to create a path to retreat. The gunmen facing the charge began to pull back away from the English. As the space had been created for Duke and Herbert's troops to cross the river and relieve the pressure from O'Neill's battling at the rear, officers tried to reorganise the panic-stricken men and cover themselves with countering shots, but it was no use. English troops continued to fall dead. Leaving all the supplies meant for Ennis Gillen behind, Duke and Herbert commanded a retreat upstream to a crossing away from the Irish at their rear and front. Unusually, the Irish horsemen, who were positioned to the northeast of the crossing, didn't pursue the retreat, nor did the infantry who had been attacking. Instead, they took to the spoils left behind. Hundreds of men's belongings and equipment and all the provisions meant for a castle and his men were deemed more important, or rather more irresistible, than running down the English forces. The supply of hard-tack bread left behind gave the name to the first major victory for the Irish of the Nine Years' War, Bailohna Brioski or the Ford of the Biscuits. Sir Henry Duke and Sir Edward Herbert counted 56 dead and 69 wounded in their ranks and counted themselves lucky it wasn't more. In their report to Dublin, they wrote of their men, quote, They are glad that any escaped alive considering the immense multitude of the enemy, unquote. The Lord Deputy William Fitzwilliam had at this point served his time in Ireland and preparations for his leave to England had been ongoing for some time. The Lord Deputy, now in his early 70s, who had also been sick for some time, was to be replaced by the new deputy, Sir William Russell. During the crossover between the deputies, Russell had been given the details of the mess he was inheriting within Ireland. Reports of thousands of Scots arriving in the north, rumour of up to 10,000 Spaniards en route to Irish shores, raids all over the west and north of the country, and a relief force to Fermanagh defeated. He had a lot of work to do, but he didn't hesitate to get started. Russell's first action as Lord Deputy was to gather and lead 1,000 men and 200 horsemen himself to relieve the siege at Enniskillen. He had stated that mustering that number of men was no easy task and was aware it might not be enough if he was challenged by the North's full force. But the relief mission was a success, arriving on the 30th of August and reporting the men inside had been living on horses, dogs, salt hides, cats and even rats. But while travelling to and from Enniskillen, the Englishmen met no resistance from Aguirre, O'Donnell or O'Neill. They had lifted the siege and allowed the supplies through, although the English spies ahead of Russell's army mysteriously never returned. On his march back to Dublin, he left garrisons around the Ulster border and disbanded the rest of his men. 
Next on Russell's agenda was a trek closer to his new home in Dublin. The Wicklow Mountains had been used by the Irish as a great place for refuge and ambush since the initial Norman invasion and centuries later it was still under control by the O'Toole clan and the O'Brien clan or the O'Tooles and O'Burns. You can still see the mountains covered in forest today from all over Dublin and must have to the Lord Deputy felt like Sauron's eye constantly peering over the hub of English command in Ireland and a reminder of the constant threat still within the province of Leinster. William Fitzwilliam, the previous deputy, had noted on his sleeve that Feich Micaiah O'Brien, the clan chief in Wicklow, had to be dealt with. He said, quote, It is high time to take Faye McHugh down and remove from the state so great a blemish. When he is expulsed, the chief receptacle of traitors in Leinster will be broken. Unquote. At this time, there had been a lot of concern about the lack of Englishmen serving in Ireland and the lack of money as well. Russell had written to the Queen's advisor that without supplies of fresh Englishmen, food, money, guns and ammunition, they basically couldn't do anything further about the state of the north, as he puts it. So began his obsession to root out O'Brien from Wicklow and secure Dublin's southern border. At the end of August, A. Rua O'Donnell and A. Magour had written letters to the Lord Deputy requesting peace and protection. O'Donnell even claimed he'll send his Scots mercenaries back to Scotland if he's pardoned, and in addition requested that pardon be extended to all of those involved in the Northern Revolt. This was all middlemaned by Tyrone, who continued to put his word forward in favour of O'Donnell, Magour and the other Ulstermen. There was a meet-up arranged in Cavan for a formal submission and Tyrone was to hand over his son to the English to be educated and raised in good faith of the arrangement. None of which ever happened. The Earl of Tyrone was using the time during the peace talks in late August, early September to bring in their harvest and prepare their armies. The winter of 1594, though fairly quiet militarily, was busy with letters across the country and in England. Rumour of Tyrone's want to be King of Ireland with 20,000 men sent from the Pope, the Spanish and their King and more than 2,000 Irishmen behind them. These were excessive rumours, but Tyrone's thin veil was becoming increasingly transparent. Not sending his son to Dublin as agreed, and a captured Irishman's confession of Tyrone's involvement in Enniskillen, along with the other multitude of suspicious activities, seemed to finally be enough for Russell to lose all faith in him, as he states on October 15th, quote, Tyrone has broken his promise with the state. Unquote. A couple of weeks later, Queen Elizabeth demanded Tyrone's submission and promised Russell a fresh force if Tyrone refused. There was still somewhat of a ceasefire at this time, and while the Irish continued to grow their forces and supply them with food and weapons, Russell's administration was desperately stuck at a standstill. The Earl was importing massive amounts of gunpowder, upwards of £15,000 of it from Scotland, and he even began making the powder in Dungannon himself. As for the lead shots, he was ordering tons of lead for the roof of his castle to be built, but instead was melting it down and making his own bullets. He had even openly advertised the recruiting of 1,900 men for his own army in Tyrone, which Bagenal had ratted him out on. Two months went by after the Queen's request and Tyrone was still refusing to travel to Dublin to submit out of fear for his life, or so he was saying. It was just more delay tactics. But still, there was no backing up of the Queen's threat. William Russell wrote in early December to the Privy Council in London, quote, Tyrone has drawn to his party all the chief lords of countries. In the whole province of Ulster, no part standeth for Her Majesty except Knockfergus, the Newry, Monaghan, Enniskillen and the Blackwater. Want two thousand foot and some companies of horse. The rebels of Ulster will no longer stay by temporising. 
Russell was fed up waiting to react to the inevitable offensive that was clearly coming. January of 1595 began, and Russell had to go ahead to lead a surprise campaign against Veik Micaiah O'Brien in Wicklow. But while Russell was busy preparing to attack Tyrone's ally in the Wicklow Mountains, A. Magua was gearing up to start the year with a bang. Enniskillen Castle remained in English hands, and he, alongside a group of heavily armed men, were preparing for an assault on his occupied castle. Magua and 40 men overran the barn walls of Enniskillen, but were repulsed by the defenders inside the tower. The small garrison threw heavy rocks from the top of the castle, smashing down on top of the attackers. There was no further advancement Magua could take, and they were forced to retreat back to the riverbank. But as they escaped, they stole the boats the garrison had been using to patrol the river and as their method of contact. Though the attack on the castle didn't go as planned, they had now isolated the garrison, and Dublin simply didn't have the means to send an army to Fermanagh again. Russell, however, was completely focused on Wicklow. His surprise attack had sent Feyk onto the back foot as he was forced to abandon his castle in Ballyanacurra in South Glenmalier. Russell took control of the area, leaving Feyk and his people to the refuge of the mountains, where Feyk began to send word to Tyrone for help, asking for either reinforcements or an event that would draw Russell out of Wicklow by some way or another. And in February, that distraction would come, and the news would not only pull Russell's attention from O'Brien, but would shock the entire English administration. The Assault on the Blackwater Fort The Blackwater Fort sat deep within Ulster, between Tyrone and Armagh on the bank of the River Blackwater. On the Tyrone side of the river, the bridge was guarded by a stone gatehouse, and as you crossed to the Armagh side, there was a four-storey wooden castle which towered above the square fort. It was established in the 1570s as part of the Enterprise of Ulster, which was more or less a failed plantation attempt led by select nobles of Elizabeth's court. In this case, the Earl of Essex, Walter Devereux and Sir Thomas Smith, who claimed the fort could hold 200 soldiers but only needed 50 to defend it. The enterprise was abandoned but the English fort remained manned, despite it being in such a difficult location for Dublin to reach safely. By 1595, its weakness was evident, with now only 26 men inside, but its position still of strategic importance. On Sunday, the 16th of February, the brother of the Earl of Tyrone, Art McBaron O'Neill, marched towards the Blackwater Fort with around 40 gunmen and two prisoners with their hands tied. The Irish men marched through the small town that had built up beside the fort on the Armagh side, as if to simply pass through. But as they approached the stone gatehouse over the bridge, the fort's guard noticed that the men held bullets in their mouths and the matches on their guns were lit. A shout echoed through the fort to close the gates, but there was no time. The English guard opened fire and the Irishmen ran to the gatehouse and barged their way inside, forcing the five men defending it to the top floors. As the men fought back and forth in the gatehouse, 200 Irishmen lying in wait sprung from their positions and stormed the northern side of the fort. The remaining men with the women and children living inside the fort ran to the wooden castle for safety. The fighting was intense as Art McBaron and his men tried to gain access to the wooden and stone buildings. They tried burning the doors but the English managed to put the fires out three times with whatever liquids they could find. The fighting continued for hours with little advancement for Art but with his death count slowly rising. Finally, he called his men to stop. Enough had died and storming the buildings would be an unnecessary end to many lives. So Art chose diplomacy, albeit a kind of forced diplomacy. He sent the Chancellor of Armagh, Mortis O'Cullen, to talk to the commander of the fort, Edward Cornwall in hopes they would meet his terms. 
Abandon the fort with all of your belongings peacefully, or we'll call on 1,000 men to storm and torch the building, is basically what he said. Cornwall sent his wife back with his demands of 24 hours to think on it, but that wasn't happening. Art showed Cornwall's wife the bundles of wood and tinder that had been gathered in preparation to burn the wooden castle and threaten the lives of everyone inside. Edward Cornwall surrendered to Art's terms and by midnight they were completely disarmed and the fort under Irish control. This wasn't what made the ordeal shocking though. Forts and castles were taken and retaken, garrisons attacked and stockpiles raided, it was happening pretty frequently. What made this particular event stand out above the others? was the arrival of Aonail, the Earl of Tyrone, after the fort garrison had capitulated. He had come in person to meet Art to see the destruction of the fort and its towers, and he wanted the blood of the English garrison, which his brother Art argued against as he had given his word of their safety if they surrendered. The rumours that had been spread like wildfire that Tyrone's loyalties did not belong to the Queen were now confirmed, as he showed himself at the scene. It's important to remember that he hadn't officially broken with the crown up until this point. There had never really been any substantial evidence to say where he stood other than the word of others to which he constantly refuted. But now there was no question. Aonale was leading the Irish and there were many witnesses who could attest to that. I don't think his official breaking from the crown was shocking however. Reading the calendar of the state papers relating to Ireland, a great resource of letters and notes from the time, everyone seemed to know he would eventually break into open rebellion. I think that the English in Ireland knew that when he did lift his mask, it would begin a war that they were nowhere ready to counter. Tyrone had allies in the Catholic, Scottish and the Spanish. He had money coming in and supplies and men. The English in Ireland did not have such luxuries, and Deputy Russell I don't think knew what to expect after the Blackwater assault. I think for the first time in Ireland, they knew they could be facing defeat, and that scared them more than shocked them. The Earl of Tyrone was now out in the open and ready for war. 1595 would begin the cracking in the foundation of English rule in Ireland. After the taking of the Blackwater, Irish-led raids began all over the northern half of the island. Northern Connacht, Slane, Louth, Monaghan, Longford were all being sacked and burned by Magour, O'Donnell, the O'Neills and the other Irish leaders. But on the 19th of March, the Lord Deputy's prayers had been answered when English reinforcements arrived in the southern county of Waterford from Brittany. The fresh English army, a lot of whom had great battle experience and some of whom had none, were to be led by one of the better commanders to come out of England, Sir John Norris, who had a pretty impressive record having very successfully fought in France and the Netherlands and had served in Ireland previously. During the enterprise of Ulster I mentioned earlier, the plantation attempt involved in Walter Devereux, Norris participated in an event akin to something from Game of Thrones. Devereux had offered to meet and feast with Brian MacPhailham O'Neill and his followers at a conference in Belfast, who was one of the leaders of Ulster during 1574. After a few days of eating and drinking and once the Irish guard was down, Norris, Devereux and their men slaughtered 200 unarmed Irish and sent Brian O'Neill and his wife to Dublin where they were executed. A year later, Norris led a party to Rattlin Island where the rebel Sorley Bui MacDonald's people held a stronghold. Norris defeated the garrison of 200 men and continued on to slaughter three to 400 other inhabitants on the island in what's known as the Ratland Island Massacre. I think you get the idea. He was ruthless in command and his arrival in Ireland was well needed for the English. 
He, however, contracted malaria just before leaving Brittany. So in the meantime, his brother Henry took the responsibility of the roughly 1,300 Englishmen and made their way towards Dublin to wait for John to arrive. The Irish were still rampaging through the country at this point. Avery O'Donnell was having a serious back and forth with the Binghams in Sligo and Roscommon. And after destroying Cavan, he went to aid the McMahona clan in their native country of Monaghan, where they sieged the vulnerable English garrison at the fort of Monaghan in hopes of taking back control. But there was more to the siege than the English may have thought. With the Brittany forces arriving in Ireland with new commanders, it was only an amount of time before Deputy Russell sent a relief force to lift the siege and supply the Monaghan garrison. But we've seen this set up before, at the Ford of the Biscuits. Tyrone had a large web of spies and friends still connected with England and he knew that Russell had been supplied with men, but hardly enough lead and gunpowder to satisfy a campaign against them. Using blockades and forcing a path for the inevitable relieving army, Tyrone could begin setting his trap. The Battle of Clontibret The Lord Deputy commissioned Tyrone's most hated enemy in Ulster, Henry Bagenal, with 1,500 footmen and 250 horsemen to relieve the Monaghan garrison. But Russell was overconfident. He still regarded the Irish as a rabble of barbarous, outdated warriors, and Bagenal, who thought he had seen the worst of them in Belique, was expecting much of the same outdated and unorganised units. Neither of them were calling the events only the year previously at the Ford of the Biscuits. A captain of the Brittany men at one stage even voiced his concern about the lack of ammunition they had brought, but Bagenal replied, quote, Captain, you are not now in France or the Low Countries, for you shall not be put here to fight as there, unquote. In reality though, their supplies were just low, and Russell was convinced the sight of their army alone would cause the Irish to flee. The Royal Army marched from Newry on the 25th of May, but Tyrone followed their every move, even showing himself with his guard of 100 horsemen in the distance of the English camp on their first night. The next day at the border of Monaghan in Crossdall, Tyrone sent units of gunmen on a campaign of classic guerrilla annoyance aimed at the marching English army. The Irish set up on high ground flanking the road with natural cover and as the relief force passed through, the Irish guns let loose. Hours of severe skirmishing forced the English guns to react and to try and cover the rest of Bagenal's men who passed through the centre of the battle. Eventually, the English made it through, and the sieging Irish force in Monaghan backed off when the supplies arrived. Seems an odd thing for Tyrone to allow the army through and succeed in their mission, but Bagenal's march to Monaghan was only stage one of Tyrone's plan. Firstly, Tyrone was waiting on his full force to arrive with him, so he wasn't yet in a position to attack Bagenal. So rather than waiting around, he enticed the English into a skirmish he knew they couldn't win, but would drain their small supply of ammunition. By forcing them to cover their marching army for four hours, shooting back at the Irish flanks, they would have little to no munitions left for the march back south, especially after leaving some with the garrison in Monaghan. It's also thought some of Tyrone's men had training but no battle experience, and this was a good opportunity to prepare them for future battles. Bagenal arrived and stayed the night in Monaghan, reporting a loss of 10 men on the trip. Impossible to know how true that account is, but whatever the amount was, it was enough for him to consider his march back to Newry. The English marched south at 10am the next morning, and as any decent commander might do, he began planning a new route, hoping to avoid a repeat of the previous day. Vanguard, battle and rearguard, they marched a more southerly route towards Clontenbury. Tyrone had expected Bagnall to return the same way and had his men in ambush along the route, but kept some horses in Monaghan for reconnaissance, just in case. 
It became obvious quickly to the Irish scouts that Bagenal and his men were looking to take a different route. Tyrone had blockaded some to assure their predictability, but when the English began moving towards Clontibre and Tyrone became aware, he immediately sent message to all of his men sitting in position, waiting near the border of Crossdall. Tyrone had not inspected the possibility of an ambush at Clontibre, and devising a new plan in such a short time was pretty risky. But the risk was clearly worth the potential outcome, knowing he still had a greater number and greater supply. Time was the enemy for both armies now. He galloped ahead of the English army in order to find a suitable place, and the Irish landscape once again aided itself to the cause and presented a hill to the right of the road, a large boggy area to the left where two bogs, Galabog and Tonabog, met each other in a short strip over the road where a ford had been built, creating a bottleneck. The Irish army had two miles less to march than the English. Tyrone could only hope they would arrive and get into position before Bagenal crossed. Bagenal rode atop his horse with the vanguard when he approached the boggy area. I imagine a silence grew within the march whenever they would notice their considerable disadvantageous position after the day before. With little choice they kept forward getting closer to the hill on the right side, when Bagenal spotted the Irish. Cormac McBaron O'Neill sat waiting to the front of the English at the crossing, and the gunmen and bowmen rose from their positions on their left and right flanks. Tyrone with a unit of pikemen approached the rear. The Irishmen had beaten the clock, and the English troops were now completely surrounded. The battle of time shifted now only to Bagenal. Outnumbered, outpositioned and low on ammunitions, the only path to survive was to force their way over the crossing before they became fish in a barrel. Cormac and Tyrone charged both ends of the marching army and the flanks shot round after round. Each volley of shot was followed by a charge from the Irish cavalry to give time to reload and stop the English horsemen charging back. The waves of shot and charges battered the English, completely pinning them down, continuing for hours until, as Tyrone had planned, the English ran out of ammunition. Tyrone ordered his gunmen to close in around the English for a final volley and charge from all of his men to completely annihilate Bagenal's troops. The English formations were wavering, becoming disorganised, waiting. The Earl A. O'Neill ready to lead the final charge himself, but while he reorganised his men, an Irishman within the English army, James Sedgrave, volunteered a counter-charge to try and kill Tyrone. A suicide mission, but if successful, would more than likely rout the Irish and possibly tilt the war in their favour. Setgrave and O'Neill faced each other at the front of their cavalry, all the Irish waiting for the command. But Setgrave was eager, and before Tyrone had a chance, the English cavalry started moving. O'Neill dug his heels into his horse and commanded the cavalry to charge. Every man not on horseback stood and watched as the weight of Ireland rested on the result of this clash. O'Neill and Sedgrave galloped full tilt and smashed their lances into one another, shattering and splintering the wood off their armour as the flood of horses intertwined in a wave of chaos and death around them. The two men, having failed to dismount one another on impact, gripped and dragged each other from their horses and fell to the ground. Surrounded in the mud, rumbling with the cavalry battle above, Sedgrave got top position, using brute force on O'Neill. He stabbed at him, hoping he would find a crevice in Tyrone's armour. Tyrone stayed calm in a battle of brain versus brawn, as has been recounted by John Mitchell in the mid-19th century. Here's what he wrote. Quote, there was one moment's deadly wrestle on a death groan. The shortened sword of O'Neill was buried in the Englishman's groin beneath his mail. Then, from the Irish ranks arose such a wild shout of triumph as those hills had never echoed before. 
The still thundercloud burst into a tempest. Those equestrian statues became as winged demons, and their battle cry of Law of Jaragabu, and their long lances poised in eastern fashion above their heads, down swept the chivalry of Tyrone upon the astonished ranks of Saxon. The banner of St. George wavered and went down before that furious charge. The English turned their bridle reins and fled headlong over the stream, leaving the field covered with their dead. And worse than all, leaving with the Irish that proud Red Cross banner, the first of its disgrace in those Ulster Wars. Unquote. As an Irishman, I can't help but love that description. But as a somewhat rational man, Mitchell's recounting of the end of the battle is a bit too grand and Braveheart-esque to believe. And in reality gives a bit too much credit to O'Neill. The Irish army saw O'Neill and Sedgreave fall from their horses and Sedgreave land on top of O'Neill. A member of the O'Cahan clan saw the trouble he was in and with sword and hand took a swing at Sedgreave, severing his arm from his body, giving O'Neill the chance to finish the job. But everything from the fall was a total blur to those outside the trampling hooves of horses. The Irish stood motionless, thinking that Amor O'Neill had died. Bagenal took the standstill as an opportunity to retreat and fled as the Irish mourned their leader. O'Neill emerged from the wreckage, not visibly glad to be alive, but furious the English had gotten away. In fact, he was so angry at the utter defeat of Marshal Henry Bagenal having slipped through his fingers that he allegedly fined his captains 40 cows apiece for not following the cavalry charge. The battle had lasted eight hours, both armies having exhausted their supplies and their men. O'Neill continued to follow Bagenal and camped around their camp at Ballymacown that night. The English army, after an eight-hour fight, which they lost, and having to march 14 miles without supplies to their camp, now had to stay awake in anticipation of another attack from Tyrone, all the while looking forward to a 14-mile march back to Newry the next day. Their morale was in tatters. O'Neill didn't attack that night, nor would he again on this expedition. The English marched to Newry the following day, but Tyrone, as usual, was one step ahead and had cut off the English supply line between Newry and Dundalk. Bagenal and his men wouldn't march for Dundalk out of fear. They had lost their confidence and didn't want to engage with O'Neill again. Not on this campaign, at least. It's easy to judge the men as cowardly or dishonourable when recounting a story 400 years old that can be hard to connect with emotionally. But can you imagine how they must have felt? leaving their camp with all of the confidence in the world, assured by their commanders that their enemy would run at the sight of them, never mind fight them. They didn't stand a chance as far as they were concerned. Some of these veteran men had fought in continental Europe and could be considered top soldiers of the English army. And then, utter defeat at the hands of Irishmen. Irishmen who had clearly outthought their movements, used superior formations and strategies and modern weaponry. They were exhausted and just glad to be alive. It seems to me, Bagenal's army was broken. Boats made their way to collect the English troops on the coast and they travelled to Dublin by sea to avoid Tyrone's army. Bagenal must have been mortified. O'Neill abandoned his position on the blockade and marched his men north, leaving the Dublin council in a state of panic. The Queen's adviser, Lord Burley, wrote that Elizabeth is, quote, Sorry to see the dishonour that Her Majesty's forces, being 1,500 footmen besides horse, dare not come from the Newry to Dundalk, but must be forced their safety to come by sea. Unquote. There had been great commanders in Ireland fighting invaders for a long time, but this was a different animal. Like the second in Rome in 410 AD, Germanic clans fighting Romans for hundreds of years would eventually learn enough from the great power to challenge them and beat them. 
Amar O'Neill was using the modern political and military techniques to fight the very power he had learned them from, and he was winning. The great command of O'Neill was nothing the occupying English had ever seen on the island before. End of part one. Well, there we have it, the first part of the Nine Years' War. This episode is a bit different to the ones I've done before. It's... um. It's a lot longer as a result of uh, trying to go more in-depth and tell the story uh, and, the, and concentrate on the characters, as well as giving enough detail of the locations and the landmarks and uh, the landscapes where battles took place. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in Ireland or be in Ireland, places that you can go and visit after listening to this and soak it all in and appreciate what's happened there and how significant these places are in our history. Um, you know, I, I go to them myself and I think it's quite cool. Uh, knowing the history about these places when you're there and being able to feel it and and yeah, you get the gist. Um, this episode took about six or seven months to research and write. Uh, I was a little optimistic. I said I'd have it out in December on my Twitter. But uh, it's the first time I've really gone, tried to tried to be as accurate and in-depth as possible. And I'm sure I'm sure I got a couple of things wrong. And if I did and you, you catch them, uh, give me a shout on Twitter or email me even and let me know and... Uh, I can correct it in the next podcast in part two. Um, the email is irishhistoryguide at gmail.com and the Twitter is at the Irish HG. But anyway, um, yeah, so I've thoroughly enjoyed this, uh, researching this and uh, the amount of information that's out there about this conflict in this period of time in Ireland is it's amazing, it's fascinating, it's so deep, there's so much stuff you can go through and uh, I'm really looking forward to researching the next the next part. You know, we're only in 1595 now, and the war doesn't end until 1603, so we have a good dose left to go. So hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed researching it. And uh, good for listening, and slán. I'll see you in the next one.